Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 to 23. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? He asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then their sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not offend them, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, when was your last mountaintop experience? You know, the sort of thing where suddenly you see your life laid out before you, how your past connects to your future, you see what's meaningful and true, and where you would happily stay there uh, forever. Well, it's a hard feeling to convey in words, but most of us have probably felt it at one time or another. For some of us, falling in love may have been that mountaintop experience, as you meet this person and you feel the sense of completion, the desire to spend your whole life together with this person, and feeling the way that you feel now. For some, perhaps it was when you first held your newborn child. The feeling of pride and awe all mingled together as you, you looked and saw this this new little person who would utterly change your life. And some of us perhaps felt it at our conversion to Christianity. 
And that was a bit of a mountaintop experience. We suddenly became aware that there is a living God out there and that we can know him and in fact have come to know him through Jesus. As we beheld the beauty of Christ, we were changed. When was your last mountaintop experience? The question that Matthew 17 raises for us is this. What comes after the mountaintop? What comes after the mountaintop? Because we all know that we can't stay there forever, as much as we might like to. You fall in love, you get married, you you go on honeymoon, you're feeling on top of the world, but as soon as you find yourself arguing about money a few months later, you realize the honeymoon is over. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you know that clarity that comes with those spiritual highs is very often and very quickly clouded by personal failings, maybe even periods of, of real spiritual attack. The problem with mountaintop experiences is that they're always followed by a letdown. But our passage this morning shows that that has always been the case, even for Jesus and the disciples, and therefore we shouldn't despair. If you were uh, with us last week as we looked at the first part of chapter 17 of Matthew, you will have heard me speak about the transfiguration, and you may remember that Peter, James, and John, the three inner circle disciples, they climbed up the mountain with Jesus, and there they beheld something amazing, uh, a very clear picture of Jesus' identity, his power, and his authority were given to them. Verses 1 to 13 tell us that Jesus and the disciples were there, and Jesus began to shine out of his very being. His face became like the sun. His clothes began to emit white light. And um, the great prophets of Israel's past, Moses and Elijah, were standing there with him, talking with him. And the disciples were confused. But then uh, God the Father spoke out of a shining cloud and said this. He said, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. I mean, just imagine it. Just imagine being on the mountain, beholding that amazing uh, vision of who Jesus is, hearing the voice of God speaking. The disciples don't know what to make of it. They were terrified. And I guess that's an understandable reaction. That might be our reaction if we were to see the same But our passage this morning picks up the story from the next day. And we we read that Jesus came down from the mountain. And you might say he came down to earth with a thud. You see, after this glorious experience uh, with the heroes of Israel's past, the, the very voice of God speaking, well, he descends the mountain only to find despair. The crowd meets him there, and we read in verse 14, When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Well, Jesus is immediately confronted with the horrors of life in this fallen and sinful world that we live in. 
The boy's father, he's desperate because his son's being tormented. And maybe his son will even be destroyed by this affliction. It's, it's throwing him into fire. It's throwing him into water. He must have been scarred from these attacks. He must have been injured and, and his features may be twisted by the seizures. And he was harassed and helpless. And so the father was harassed and helpless as well, powerless to help his beloved son. And even though they sought help from the disciples, the disciples weren't able to cast the demon out which causes Jesus to say something slightly puzzling in verse 17. O oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long will I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. According to Jesus, the problem wasn't that the attacks were too powerful for the disciples to handle. It was rather that their whole generation and they themselves were faithless. In other words, they failed to relate to God in the way that they should. This phrase, unbelieving and perverse generation that Jesus uses, that's a quote from Deuteronomy, a quote from Moses' song in Deuteronomy 32. There, as Moses is approaching death in the wilderness, he sings of the many blessings that God has given to Israel, their deliverance out of Egypt, the, the food that he provided for them in the wilderness, the land of milk and honey that they were now going to be entering into and be given. But then Moses recalls Israel's response to all these blessings of God. And he says they turned to idols. They rejected and grumbled uh, God, uh, against God, uh, and no matter how much God blesses them, the story is always the same. It's always idolatry and rebellion. And if you think back, nowhere is that more apparent than when Moses himself had his mountaintop experience. On Mount uh, Horeb, Mount Sinai, there God speaks to Moses and, and he gives him these Ten Commandments. He reveals his glory to Moses such that Moses' face shines from the very sight of it. And as Moses comes down the mountain to relate this amazing thing that he's just seen, uh, to relate God's glory to God's people, what does he find? Well, there he finds the people gathered around worshiping a golden calf, a golden calf made by his brother, no less. They were indeed an unbelieving and perverse generation. And Jesus says the same thing about Israel in his day. And I think the lesson is this. Seeing God's glory from afar and receiving the blessings from on high those things aren't effective in changing the hearts of God's people. Jesus revealed his glory on, on the mountain, and what was the response? Well, it was terror, wasn't it? He, he performed countless miracles in front of many large crowds, and what was the effect? Well, often amazement, but then just as often confusion, uh, demands to do it again, sometimes even anger against him, but rare, very rarely faith. And here it's no different. The boy, he's healed instantly. The relationship is restored between father and son. 
it's amazing, but the disciples are only concerned about themselves. Verse 19, Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. The reason why the disciples are so inadequate to facing the difficulties of life and the attacks of Satan is because they lack faith, says Jesus. But we have to be careful to see Jesus' point. It isn't simply that they needed more of something that they already had uh, in their possession. Because even the tiniest amount of faith, the, the, the amount of faith of a mustard seed, which is... Um, a very, very tiny seed, obviously. Well, that would be enough to do impossible things. Rather, their faith is inadequate because they have faith in the wrong things. They don't even have a mustard seed faith in the right things. You see it in their question uh, that their faith is in the wrong things. They say, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus' response is, because your faith is in yourselves. But God is able to move mountains. He's able to, to do the impossible. So even the smallest, even the most pathetic faith in Him is strong. Well, Jesus' frustration is palpable. If the glory of the transfiguration, if, if the audible voice from heaven uh, booming, doesn't work? Well, if great displays of power over physical uh, and spiritual oppression, if that doesn't get through to them, if that doesn't work, will anything get through to this unbelieving and perverse generation? Can anything produce faith? Can anything restore their relationship with their Heavenly Father? Well, yes. One thing will. As they left the crowds behind, they, they made their final preparations before heading to Jerusalem. And in verse 22, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. The disciples didn't yet understand, but they would. What was now hidden from them would soon be revealed. Power shown from on high would never produce the faith and the healing that their generation needed. And that our generation still needs. That sort of experience is never going to produce real faith. No mountaintop experience, no amazing display of power can ever create lasting change in people. We all know it from experience. We've all had the mountaintop uh, experience it and then realized it has passed. It's only power that condescends that will change people's hearts. Only a God that comes down from on high and makes himself nothing, taking the form of a slave and becoming obedient to death, even the death on the cross. 
Only that kind of power can have the intended effect. That is the power that changed Peter from a, a denier to a proclaimer. It's the power that changed Paul from a persecutor to a missionary. And it still changes people today, 2,000 years on. There's no mighty deed or, or mystical experience that is more powerful than uh, the message of humility and sacrifice that Jesus brings. It's only by Jesus' sacrifice of himself that an unbelieving people becomes a faithful people and, and the perverse become upright. And friends, that's why there is more hope in life's valleys than there can ever be in life's mountaintops. Yes, those moments of clarity and excitement, they, they are wonderful. But the person who's waiting for them, or, or even chasing the spiritual highs, they will never have a mature faith. You will never have a mature faith if that's what you're chasing after. Because real faith comes as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It comes as we're under attack, as, as we're desperate for refreshment, as we realize our own inadequacy and we turn and we find that Christ is there with us. And I therefore wonder, you know, is your, is your life going as you hoped it would? When you saw your life from the heights, maybe it was on your wedding day or, or at the birth of your children or, or when you launched your career or, or when you struck out in this exciting new path that you're on, did you expect to be where you are now? I guess most of us would, if we were honest, answer no. When we descend back down to earth, we always find uh, that, we're, that we're facing disillusionment and disappointment and sometimes even real spiritual evil, things that we never expected from on high. But the gospel, the good news from this morning's reading is that that is exactly where we encounter Jesus when we're brought to the end of ourselves, when we have no other option but to turn to Him in faith, that is where we discover that there is no better place for us to be. Better to be humbled, better to be defeated, better, better to be dependent and with Him than to be victorious, um, hopeful, and, and uh, full of excitement without Him. It is a truth that filled the disciples with grief. That's what we see in verse 23. Because we would much rather go up to join him than have him come down to join us in our mess. If we could choose, that's what we would do. But it's only from the low vantage point, from down here, that we can see God sustaining God strengthening, God defending us, moving mountains, doing the impossible, even being raised from the dead. Only from the low vantage point, he had to come down 
so that he could be raised up and so that he could raise us up together with him. Now we could end there. Matthew could have ended there and it would have been enough. But, but Matthew chooses to end this section of his gospel and he does bring it to an end at the end of this chapter with this strange story about the coin and the fish. So briefly, what does this story add to the picture? Well, I think the point is to show the lengths to which Jesus will go, the depths to which he will sink for the sake of his people. The temple tax, it was a voluntary but traditional yearly offering in support of the the ministry of the temple. And what Jesus would decide about the tax would show something about um, how he, he stood in, in relation to the temple. Was he opposed to it or not? But his response shows far more than his attitude toward the temple. It actually shows his disposition toward his people. And the key is in Jesus' question. What do you think, Simon? he asks. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not offend them, pay it, essentially. Pay it. This tax, it wouldn't go to the Romans. It wouldn't go to the Jewish rulers. It would go to the temple. And who, if anyone, was the king of the temple? Well, it was God himself. And if anyone, anyone on earth, anyone in history was qualified to be considered as a son who was exempt from the tax, it should have been Jesus. But Jesus says he will pay it. Well, it seems a small thing, I guess, and it'd be easy to be distracted by the miracle aspect as they find the coins in in the fish's mouths. Um, But at the heart of this anecdote, we see that Jesus is willing to be treated like a stranger by his heavenly Father, to be stripped of his rights as the Son of God so that others might become the sons, so that strangers might become sons. And just as God provided the coin which pays for Peter, but it alienates Jesus, so God provides the cross which pays the cost for us. As Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, it's for your sake. That's why. For my sake. So that that you and I could be considered sons. Jesus was made a stranger so that we could become sons. Well, there was no cost he was unwilling to pay. He willingly came down the mountain to to dwell with us here in life's valleys in the mess that we know all too well. And one day, because he did that, one day he will raise us up to heights we could barely imagine to be with him forever.
Well, that is the goodness of the Lord Jesus. And that is exactly what people in the valley need to hear. So let me pray. Father, we praise you. We thank you. The Lord Jesus did not shrink from being made a stranger to you so that we could be called sons, sons and daughters of the Most High. Lord, I pray that whatever um, those listening might be going through in life right now, that they would uh, come to the end of themselves only to find the Lord Jesus there with them, taking them beyond themselves, uh, showing them His immense power, His immense love, His immense grace. And we pray that by faith in Him, we might see mountains moving, 